0: Good morning, Overlake. Go ahead and stand on up, and we're going to start our morning by singing some songs. Uh, my name is Sachin. I'm so excited for today. <laughs> um, I know we do this every week, like it's just a thing. Like we just start by singing songs, but I think there's power, and I think there's importance in singing these truths as a church together. So let's all sing this together. It's coming on the clouds. It's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow. Bye. Wow.
1: Even when I don't see it you working, even when I don't feel it you working, he's working, he's working, he never stops working. Oh, even when, even when I don't see it you work, even when I don't feel it you working, you never stop, you never stop working, you never stop. See it working, even when I don't feel
2: and the
3: Powerful, amazing truths that we get to declare together this morning. Good morning, Overlake. My name is Connor. I am one of the student ministries pastors here. Uh, and I get the awesome privilege and honor of getting to hang out with our young adults. Quick show of hands if you would consider yourself a young adult. Let's see it. Raise them proud, raise them proud. We got some honorary young adults in the room this morning. Honorary young adults. Hey, it's great to see you all. I want to invite you to just stay standing. When you came into this place this morning, there you were given a handout, and in that handout is a connection card. I want to encourage you to take a look at it at some point this morning. In there, you'll find a space for you to um, really help get connected to anything that's going on here at Overlake. Ministry does not start and end here on Sunday mornings, but we have things going on all week long that we'd love to help connect you to to best serve you. There's also a part of that connection card on the back for prayer requests, and we'd love to know how we can be praying for you and how we can be best serving you um, in whatever season of life that you're in. Uh, there's gonna be a time at the end of service. Hold on to that connection card. There's gonna be time at the end of service where you can put that in a bucket. They're gonna be get passed around. And if this is your first time with us this morning, real quick overlay, can we give a big welcome to all the first timers this morning here with us? Welcome. Glad that you would choose this Sunday to be with us, and I want to invite you, if this is your first time, to hold on to that connection card, and after service, you can head right outside first floor. There's a connection center. You can take that connection card, turn it in, and we'd love to give you a gift, just our way of uh, saying that we're honored, and we're glad that you chose this Sunday to be with us. Uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take a few moments, turn to the person next to you, somebody you haven't seen in a while, give them a high five, a handshake, or a hug, and we will be right here in just a few moments.
4: Good morning, good morning. Uh, My name is Neely McQueen. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And I'm so excited. We are diving in. We're in the middle of a series on 1 Thessalonians. And this is one of Paul's, Apostle Paul's letters to the early churches. Um, And we're going to dive right in. I'm excited. We're in chapter 4 of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. And if you've been reading along with us at all, you know that this this chapter is packed Full of what we might call hot topics. And uh, I actually, I know a little history of how the Bible came together and the process of how it came together. And and I wonder the biblical scholars who were dividing up chapters from this letter, how they did chapter four. Because I would have loved to have been in the room watching this happen because they're like, ooh, where do we, let's just put this, let, oh, let's not separate, it's so much. And, and I, I don't want to, spoil the surprise yet, but it's a lot in 18 verses, and um, I have to just say I'm a little excited because I think the things that are covered in chapter 4 are things that are relevant to us as well as I think I'm a little apprehensive because there are a couple topics in this chapter that I think have negatively impacted how the world sees the church. So I just want to be mindful of that from the very beginning. And what I'd like to do is just actually open up with prayer that our hearts would be open, that we would hear Paul's words, Paul's not only his intent and his impact, but we would ask God, what are you inviting us into? So will you join me with prayer? Jesus, thanks so much for who you are and your goodness and your love that you did come down and that you rescued us and you saved us. And we want to be people who are learning and growing and saying yes to the invitation to align our faith and life more and more. So give us a heart to listen and um, ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so before we dive in, let's just do a quick review of where we've come from, all right? So we're going to remind ourselves it's a letter, and what that means that it's a letter. It's a letter written by Paul to a particular group of people in a particular place, facing particular problems. And so that understanding is going to help us understand better how to read the text. We just begin in that place. And when we looked at chapter one, we saw that chapter one was this intro letter. It was a welcoming letter. It was this letter where Paul was talking about how proud he was of the church. And he used three phrases that we we kind of identified as key to what setting up the whole book. And that was faithful work, loving deeds, enduring hope. And that was going to set the tone for the whole book. And then uh, chapter 2, Pastor Pat walked us through and talked about how Paul's both words and lives, life, he only had one, life, reflected that the best way to do faithful work, loving deeds, and enduring hope was together, was sharing our lives with each other. And then last week, which was chapter three, we had a guest, Jonathan, he talked about the power of standing strong, that the Thessalonians were standing strong in the midst of persecution. And that was the first three chapters. And and that's where we've been so far. And we're now nearly done with Thessalonians. We have two more chapters. And for the most part at this point, Paul's been like kind of looking back He's been saying, like, here's how you heard the word, here's how you responded to the word, here's what you've endured so far. But chapter 4 and 5 are going to change. They're going to redirect. Paul's going to start pointing them forward. This is how we continue on. This is how we live in response. So this morning we're going to walk through the entire chapter. But we're going to uh, give ourselves some tools before we dive into the chapter, a couple reminders to help prepare us to read it. Again, the first one is that we would say that context matters, that it's important to understand what is exactly happening. And the very first place we start with is this reality that this is a letter written to a particular group of people. And so with that in mind, we ask ourselves, what, why did this letter matter to them? What were they asking? What was Paul answering? And we don't, we start there and move to then how does that apply to us? And then from there, what we've been doing over like this past few weeks is we've been looking for an encouragement and for a challenge. And so we'll do that again this morning. The second thing to remember is that Paul loves these believers. He loves them. And so his tone throughout the letter is that of affection and care and concern, right? In fact, he calls himself both a caring mother and a caring father. He's like a parent. So he's not disciplining them. He's not defending himself. This is a letter birthed out of love for them. So like, you know, how many of you have ever gotten that text from somebody that says, can we talk? You know, like no punctuation. And you're like, no? Can I say no to that? Because I don't know what this means. You know, I was asking someone on my team, I was like, what's like the most intimidating text I've ever sent you? He said, it's come to my office, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) He like thought he was going to lose his job because he didn't know, like, I probably had a joke to tell him, you know? Tone matters. Tone matters to understanding this. Because we're not reading an angry Paul, we're reading a loving Paul. A concerned Paul. Because I happen to think that as we get closer to diving into some of these topics, part of the damage that has been done is how our tone has come across when we talk about these things. So, tone matters. Another thing that is important that helps give us context as we head into chapter four is this that when the apostles Peter and Paul and John wrote these letters to believers, there was this anticipation among the people in the early church. They were waiting, eagerly waiting for Christ's return. Eagerly. Most of them, when they became new believers, assumed they would see Christ's second coming, his return, before they died. And so the apostles began to, it became clear to them that like we're going to have to help our new believers understand that they got to live in the world. They got to live while they wait. And so I think the next two chapters are what I would call in the meantime. This is Paul saying in the meantime while you're waiting, this is how you should live. And so it's instructive. It turns towards how you live in the middle of this. And, and The best thing about Paul in this, this is how you know he really loves them, is even as he's about ready to give them instructions, he's still affirming them. He's still saying, you're already doing a good job. But what he does is he says, I'm inviting you to do it even more, even more. And he said, we talked about this in chapter one, that it's an invitation to align your faith and your life, that they would be aligned perfectly. And Paul's basically saying, do it even more. And in true Paul fashion, he does not hold back. Here's what he covers in 18 verses sex, money, work, and dying.
2: Who's excited for
4: today? Yeah, yeah, Paul. He's like, how much can I say in 18 verses? You know, like, how much can I go through? And so I want to be real. There's a lot in this passage. There's a lot for us to walk through. So just let me say this. I'm. We're going to keep pace. We're going to keep going. We're not going to stay anywhere too long. And so there's going to be missing information for you. So what I've done is on your notes is there's some recommended resources. If we talk about something today that catches your attention, that you're curious about. One, if you have a lot of questions, I'd love for you to engage with someone, ask someone, get, get coffee with someone, or pick up a book. Pick up a book and do a little research on some of these things. So don't hesitate to kind of take the next step there. Okay, and then the final tool we need as we dive into chapter four is this reminder that this email, I have this email, <laughs> <laughs> is a reply-all, okay? (laughs) It's not a singular. There are, I don't know why, I'm... Okay, so sometimes the apostles wrote letters to one person, they did. Sometimes there were letters to individuals, but this is to a collective group of people. And thanks to the printing press, and thanks to translators, you and I have the privilege to own a Bible, probably a lot of them, and read it by ourselves. And there's something that happens when we read a Bible in isolation that I think can be negative. And that's what we do is we personalize it too soon. And we make it about an individual. So when we're reading Paul and we see the word you, our assumption is me. When really, to really understand what's happening, Paul is saying, y'all, y'all, are anyone from the south here, you know, like, you guys, you know, when he says you, he's saying, you all need to do this. You all need, not just me, right? It's collective. So when Paul starts to address sex and money, he's inviting a community into holiness. He's inviting a whole community into honoring God with their lives. He's inviting a whole community to bear witness to what it means to follow God in this world. Paul's making individual statements, but it's a collective call. So let me explain it like this way. Think about greed. Greed is bad for the individual. Like, f- if I am greedy, that is not good for my heart, it's probably not good for my schedule, but it also is not good for my relationships because greed keeps me from my family, greed turns you into a competitor, greed makes me want the people over there to make the product as cheap as possible so I can make more money when I'm selling it or buying it. So greed destroys collective relationships. Sleeping with someone else's spouse is not good for me. That's destructive for my heart. But what does that do? It destroys relationships. It destroys these family units and then the families that are connected to them. It impacts children, impacts their children. It's not good. It's a collective call to holiness, not just an individual. And this is actually good news, I think, because our witness to the world isn't rest on one person, right? Like that's good news. It rests on us as a community to live in contrast to the world that we're living in. So those are our tools. So now let's dive in to Paul's instructions on sex, money, and dying. So we're going to start right with first one in chapter four. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God as we have taught you. You live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so I'm going to give you the encouragement right off the bat, because it's right there. And the encouragement is this, you are already pleasing God. Do so even more. Paul starts this statement, he says, finally, finally I've built up to this moment where now I can tell you what it means to align your life and faith more. But one more time, Paul says, but here's the deal. You're already doing it. You've heard our teaching and you're already putting it into practice. In another translation, it says, you're already pleasing God. Yes, you have stuff to work out. Yes, you have more aligning of your life and faith to do. But you are pleasing God right now. Overlake, you are pleasing God. Your desire to know him, your desire to love people, to serve the world, that is already pleasing God. But there is an invitation to more. There's an invitation to more life, more love, more connection, more faith and life aligned. So be encouraged. And like Paul, I'm going to turn now to the challenge. I'm going to jump right in. And this is the challenge, that faith continues to inform the way we live and die. So we'll jump in, starting in verse 3. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife, for the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So, the first faith in action here, and you can write this on your hand, fill it in your handout, is faith means surrendering our bodies to the Holy Spirit. Now, I think the conversation around sex is awkward and uncomfortable anywhere the conversation is happening, but especially in church. In fact, I think we just automatically turn to shame in this conversation in church. For those of us who have grown up in the church, we've been in the church, we've experienced kind of a wide range of messages on sex. And there's been this subculture within church called the purity culture. And that has done some damage. I I don't know about, like I grew up in youth group. I went to youth group when I was 15. I took what was called a purity pledge. Um, And I have a certificate that I signed up. And this is what the certificate said. I will stand up until I say I do. And I signed that. And I don't know, I guess, you know, the Christian circles I ran in, I guess they didn't know you could do stuff standing up. I don't know like what the scoop is there, but or that stuff was in the clear, I'm not sure. Um, But it seems they did get a little bit clearer uh, um, understanding because then it became like the true love waits pledge. And we've seen that, we've seen that in pop culture, we've seen celebrities take that pledge. And what happened for some of us is that we walked out of church pretty confused about sex because we began to tie our value and our worth to sex. And we began to believe that God saw us first as sexual beings. And so we became ashamed of our bodies and we became ashamed of the things that we were feeling and the things that we were experiencing inside our bodies. And so what we did because we were so confused and ashamed is instead of really diving into what scripture said, we just instead said the church shouldn't care about my sex life. And so before we unpack what Paul's saying here, for those of you in the room who have felt shame and have felt hurt by the church and the way they've talked about this, I just wanna say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know there is pain in this conversation. And so today as we dive in, I, I don't look, I'm not looking to add to that harm. So I want you to know this is, comes from a place of care and concern as we unpack what Paul has to say. So let's dive in. What is Paul saying? I talked about this this first week where Paul's inviting the the believers in Thessalonica to align their faith and their life. And what he's doing here is saying this also includes your body. It includes aligning your body with your faith. That it matters how we treat our body. That it matters how we treat the bodies of others. So what's happening in this time in when Paul's writing this letter is the first thing, he references the pagans. And what the pagans were doing in the pagan temples, they were like almost like brothels. There was like prostitution and there was rituals that became part of pagan practices around sex. And then there's this other thing that he hints about is that there's this practice that the powerful can have access to any woman they want. Anybody's wife or woman. And so Paul's saying to the young believers, look, when you look around and you see these practices happening all around you, Paul's saying, stay away from them. Stay away from them. Don't steal someone's wife. In fact, what does he say? He, goes, he says this, honor God with your what? Your own body. Take control of your own body. Honor the Holy Spirit's work in you. And Paul's not saying like the body is bad either. There was this mindset, this dualist mindset that body was bad, body was evil, and only the soul was good. And Paul's actually inviting the Thessalonians to understand that this aligning of life and faith, it includes the body. It includes their practices with their body. They should align those practices with what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of them. That, that was a contrast to what the world was living. It was completely opposite to what the world was doing. In fact, um, it, they, were on, they were surrendering their bodies to the Holy Spirit, and it, and it bore witness. They stood out. They stood out. I love this. One of the things that was said about the early church by like historians or writers during that time. This is what they said and about the early church. I don't think we understand it. It kind of goes over our head a little bit because we're not living in the same kind of culture. But it says this of the early church. They shared everything but their wives. They shared everything but their wives. It's interesting. What, what we don't understand, again, because it's not our culture, is this is actually an elevation of women, right? Women were property, and he's saying, no, they too should control their own body. There's something happening there. Let that sink in. So what does this mean for for us? I think we've lost our ways in how we view our bodies. I think we've been quick to say our body is bad, and I think we've allowed people with power to take advantage of those without power, And I I happen to believe that the world is desperately looking for a church that is counter to that message. They're looking for a church that says, not us. We're not part of that. That we don't subscribe to those patterns. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes that's not what they found. But here at Overlake, this this is important. We reject the lie that says our bodies don't matter. We reject the lie that says powerful can take advantage of the weak. And we're gonna be a place that allows the Holy Spirit to guide our bodies. We'll be a place that says any practice that allows the powerful to do with others as they wish a rejection of God's authority and therefore evil. That includes human trafficking, domestic violence, sexual assault, they don't have place here in this family. That's it. That's what we just believe. We commit to being a body of believers who allow our bodies, our individual and our collective bodies, be surrendered to the Holy Spirit. So then it, it changes and moves somewhere else. This is the next fill in. Faith shapes our generosity and the way we work. Verse 9, we pick up. But we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other, for God himself has taught you to love one another. Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers throughout Macedonia. Even dear brothers and sisters, we urge you to love them even more. Underline two statements there. The first one is this, loving each other and even more. So we just talked about sex, and then Paul says love each other even more, and you're like, wait, I'm confused. How's he switching conversation here? I actually think another translation, the common English Bible translation, will help us understand it a little bit more. This is what that translation says. You don't need us to write about loving your brothers and sisters, because God has already taught you to love each other. In fact, you're doing loving deeds. So here it is. It's this change of direction from the, the body to the family. And he's inviting us to even more. This new believing family has formed. They love each other. N.T. Wright, a uh, biblical scholar, says the literal ch- translation there is actually the love of family or kinship. Kinship. The, the believers felt that they were responsible for each other because they were kin. And they were doing that not only with their believers in their little community, but on beyond Thessalonica. They were doing, they were loving. And I love that that translation says loving deeds because we know that from chapter 1, right? That loving deeds is love in action. It's a labor of love. It means I'm willing to do whatever I need to do for the love of family. And again, it's Paul's probably indicating a message they've already heard. Like, share everything, not your wives, not your spouses, but share everything because you are a family and continue. Do it even more. Do it more. They, there was no need among them because they were not letting their greed drive them. One of my heroes, Greg Boyle, he started ministry of gang members in LA. He said this, what we've come to see as a community is that no kinship, no peace, no kinship, no justice, no kinship, no equality. And what I've heard him say is that his whole ministry shifted when he stopped seeing himself as the person to rescue the gang member. What his ministry changed was because they they became his brother and his sister, and his actions became oriented out of kinship, not service. And here's what I wonder about this room. I know in this room there are people who are desperate for connection who could use a sister, who could use a brother, who need an aunt, an uncle, a parent, a grandparent. They're desperate for that kind of relationship and belonging. So what is getting in the way of us experiencing that? What's getting in the way of us experiencing what they experienced in Thessalonica? I happen to think it's greed. Greed of time, greed of money, and that will always come in the way of us experiencing family. Always in the way. It's about generosity. What, do we, what does it mean to be people who live not just generous with our money, but with our time, with our relationship, with our ability to be connected? Remember, Pastor Pat encouraged us to share our lives. And that invitation was already happening. It was already happening there. And Paul's saying, do it even more, even more. And then he goes on to verse 11, he says this, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we have instructed you before. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend on others. Paul turns from how we treat our bodies to how we treat our families to how we treat those outside of our families. What does it mean in the meantime, in the common places? What is it supposed to be like while we wait for Christ's return? While you work, while you live, what should happen? He says you should gain the respect of the neighbors. You should gain the respect of outsiders. And this word quiet, it's a little confusing for us. Because we're like, should we whisper? Is that what we should do? Should we instill quiet hours? I just like whispering now. Here's the deal. My family's immediately disqualified. Disqualified we are loud. <laughs> like, I don't know how five people make as much noise as we do, but we're just loud. Like, I, I'm certain it's me. I'm the problem. <laughs> I just, I don't know how to be quiet. Like, we, my husband's on the phone. I'm like, I think they can hear you. You are so loud. Like, we just have kids, everybody. We're like at 20 volume all the time, you know? So it's a little discouraging when you read that because you're like, well, do I belong? Is this what's the problem? Actually, this is not what Paul's saying. Paul's not talking about volume here. When he uses this word in other places, he's talking about living wise, being a calming presence. Are you a calming presence in your neighborhood? Are you a place of peace in your neighborhood? In your workplace, are you a calming presence? That's what Paul's inviting them into. He's saying, look, you got to shift your mindset as Christ followers and realize that your generosity is also your work. It's also how you live every day. It's part of your neighboring and part of your job. It's part of aligning your life and your faith. They go together. It's not just pieces separated. It's one. That theme keeps coming back again and again. And so may we be people, may we be people who align our faith with our life and work in a way that is aligned with who Jesus is and who his kingdom is, what his kingdom is. And it may impact the way we live, but it may impact the way we die, may it impact the way we face death. And that's our final fill in today. It's this faith gives us hope even in the midst of death. So we're going to read a couple verses here. There's a lot to unpack, and so we'll spend a little bit of time on it, but starting in verse 13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. So you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living, when the Lord returns, will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Okay a lot so let's take a little time let's unpack what's happening here and I think this is an important context piece to understand that the believers were dying some of them naturally but they were starting to experience persecution and so some of them were losing their life because of their faith and they had a really clear, clear question what happens to believers who die See, they had this hope that Christ was going to return, and it's probably likely that many of them thought that they would see it in their lifetime. They thought they would see the triumphant return of Christ, and yet they're dying. And so Paul wants to reassure them Christ is still triumphant, Christ still return, will return. And so this is where he begins this point of teaching. He's gonna comfort them. He's gonna say, look, here's the very basis truth you need to know, Jesus died and was raised. That changes everything. Jesus' death and resurrection, it's, it's the event of the event, it changes everything. And because of that, it now means the dead and the living are going to participate in resurrection all of creation will experience death, and all of creation is invited to participate in the resurrection. That's the hope that they needed. So Paul then goes on to explain, and he explains this very interesting. In verse 15, you see this, we tell you this directly from the Lord. Paul's saying, like, this is what we've been told, because Paul actually never you know, he was not a disciple, he was not walking with Jesus, but he's saying this is what's been passed on that Jesus himself has said. And this is a place where people have a lot of different opinions or thoughts about what is Paul actually saying happens here. And there is a group of people who, when they come together and they study, they, they use this passage as making a case for what we call the theology of rapture, of the rapture. And this is where believers, all believers, will be raised and removed from heaven to earth in a moment, in a blink of an eye. When I was in junior high, I watched this movie. It's a very old movie, very, very old, called um, A Thief in the Night. It's like way before the left behind books or movies. It's like way old. I mean... uh, the effects are amazing. It's amazing, right? But I watched that when I was in junior high, and I will tell you, from that moment on, every nightmare since that moment was about me being left behind, like 100%. Like, my dad, I would, like, wake up in the morning, and I thought my dad was supposed to be home, and he wasn't there, and I was like, I've been left behind, it's happened. Like, everywhere. Like, we'd be in a crowded place. Like, all of a sudden, I couldn't find my dad. It's happened. I'm gone. You know, like, what? And I want to admit, like, that says something a little bit about me needing to work some stuff out. But that is, that's this idea of the rapture, that they would just be pulled up and out. And that's what some people um, take away from this passage. There are others who say Paul is using metaphors or image from the Old Testament, just like Jesus did, to more point to Christ's triumphant return where he'll rule heaven and earth together. That Paul isn't actually explaining an exit strategy. That in fact, the idea that they meet in the sky is a joining of heaven and earth as one kingdom in which Christ reigns. And that's the the resurrection of all creation. So again, there's some tension. There's a little bit of different perspectives on what this passage is saying. Here's what I wanna do. I wanna encourage you. If this is something you're really interested, pick up a recommended resource. Surprised by Hope is a great book that walks through this idea and through this passage. I'd encourage you, do the research. But what's more important for me today, because of the sake of our time, is I want to ask ourselves what we asked ourselves at the very beginning. And if you remember the first week, we talked about Professor Gordon Fee. He's a New Testament scholar. He wrote a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. He he reminds us when we come to a text like this— we can't come with our question. And maybe our question would be, what's it going to look like when Christ returns? That, that's our question. The, the reader, the original reader, their question is, what about the people we love who have died? What happens to them? And so that's what Paul's addressing. And Paul's reassuring them that the believers, that not even death will separate them from the participation in the new resurrection. Not even death will keep them from participating in the resurrection of all things. And he's writing them and he's telling them, this is, what, this is what you need to know in the midst of this. He's showing them that even the living, even the dead, all will be raised up. And Paul ends this short teaching, he says this, encourage one, one another with this. The encouragement comes because in the midst of death, they can know because of their faith, that when they're facing death for themselves that that's not the end they will get to participate and for those who are grieving it's an encouragement because those people that you have lost you will be reunited with them with the resurrection that's why it's encouraging i mean the reality is that none of those early believers saw Christ's triumphant return even paul they all died And yet the hope is not that they they didn't see it. The hope is that they will see it. That death doesn't have the final word for them and death doesn't have the final word for us. Because of faith, we face death with a promise of hope. Hope that those who have gone before us will participate with us. And hope for those who have lost, that even in our grief, we can cling to the hope of resurrection. This is the promise this is the hope that fuels our faith. And I want to encourage you this, this morning, family. I want to encourage you that how we live in the meantime while we wait matters. How we, what kind of people we become, people who align our life and faith, who bring them and merge them together. May we be people like the Thessalonians, who this is what. I want to remind you what was said of the Thessalonians in chapter one. It says this, Every time we think of you, we thank God for you. Day and night, you're in our prayers as we call to mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in following our master, Jesus Christ, before God our Father. It's clear to us, friends, that God not only loves you very much, but also has put his hand on you for something special. When the message we preached came to you, it wasn't just words. Something happened to you. The Holy Spirit put steel in your convictions. May we be people who experience God's love and we hear his message and it transforms our life. And that transformation leads us to be people who constantly work to align our life and faith who constantly work to align our faith and our bodies, who constantly work to align our faith and our generosity, who constantly work to align our faith and our work, our faith and our hope in the midst of grief. One of my favorite Christian authors um, died this past year. Her name was Rachel hall Evans, And she has this quote that she sent to some people that she was encouraging in the midst of the struggle. And, this, and I wrote it on my whiteboard in my office because it matters to me. And this, this is what I look at. It says this, the work is hard, be faithful. The work is hard, be faithful. See, the work of surrender, the work of aligning our lives, it's so much harder than just not doing it. That's the reality. The invitation is to do it, is to align our life, to be faithful people who are committed to it. This work is hard. Be faithful. And this morning we're going to come to the communion table. And the communion table is this moment where we do something in remembrance of what Jesus did. Jesus was hanging out and he was sharing a meal with his friends. And he broke the bread and he said, this bread represents my body broken for you. And then he took a cup of wine and he said, this wine represents the blood that will be spilled for you. And he said, I want you to do this practice in remembrance of me over and over. And so that's what we do. We practice it. And what we do is we remember that when we come to this table and we take the bread, we remember that Christ had a body and that body was broken for both our body and our soul. And we remember at this table that what's available here is not just a salvation of a moment, but a salvation into a family. And we remember at this table that because of Christ's death and resurrection, we have a promise of a life eternal. This is a table of remembrance and a table of gratitude. And when we come to this table, we recognize this meal, this meal gives us all that we need, fills us all with what we need to be faithful. To be faithful. And so that's the invitation when we come to the table. So why don't you do this? Why don't you stand and let me pray as before we come to the table. Jesus, we say thank you for the gift of your life, the gift of your death, the gift of resurrection. And Jesus, as we participate in this meal as a remembrance, God, may it also be an invitation to participation, to participate in aligning our life with our faith, to be faithful people because you have been so faithful to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: is. song. Now my heart has found a home, and now your grace is ever with me, and I'll never be alone. Come on. And now my soul can sing a new song. Now my heart has found a home, and now your I'll never be alone. Jesus, we align our hearts to you. We align our hearts and our faith, our hearts and our bodies, our minds, what we know to be true, and with the what we live out. And, and we know that we are prone to wander, and we know that we're prone to leave you and to do our own thing. But Jesus, t- today we're declaring that. Here's our heart. Take it, Lord. It's yours. We know we know what we're reading and we know what you're saying. And so, God, like we just go after you and we just go after the thing you want. We owe you everything. Let's sing this one last time. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Oh, daily I'm We align our lives with him. So let your goodness like a fetter. Bind my wandering heart to Thee. Oh, prone you to wander, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. love. So here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Oh, seal it for Thy. Let's sing that one more time. Oh, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it, seal it for one more time that we align our hearts to what He wants. Oh, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it, seal it for Thy courts above. Yes.
5: Amen, amen. you go ahead and have a seat. So great to be worshiping with you. We're going to continue on in a moment in our response, in our worship by giving you the gifts, our gifts, tithes, and offerings. And there's many ways you can give here, whether it's live on Sunday morning or online or through texting, there's many ways to give. I'm gonna ask the ushers to come forward this morning and you guys know we have, um, oh, sorry, just to mention, if you are newer to Overlake and as the buckets come by, we actually ask that you hang on to your card and go out to the info center. We have a gift we'd like to give you and just hand it to somebody there. You guys know every week we've been having um, testimonies and I had asked if I could share this week. I actually am not gonna share my testimony, but I wanted to share with you the testimony of one of our Overlake um, supported missionaries, a good friend of mine, Kathy and her husband Jose. Kathy and Jose have been church planters and mission mobilizers based in Spain. They've mentored hundreds of people many who are serving around the world as long-term missionaries. They are known and beloved by thousands in their community. They have faithfully served the church they lead. They've run youth camps, ministry to the poor, outreach to migrants from North Africa and Latin America. They love people well. And then Kathy has been fighting various forms of cancer for the last 15 years and graduated to heaven on January 26th. And I wanted you to hear what both her husband and dad wrote um, about the testimony of her life and her death and how she even purposed her final days. So here's what Jose wrote. My dear wife, Kathy, has passed away to be with the Lord. January 26, Sunday afternoon, she went to meet him. Our hearts are flooded with grief for her loss, but praise for her victory. Kathy has fought the good fight. She finished the race and kept the faith for which she has reserved the crown of righteousness. Fifteen years of struggle with cancer have ended in victory. Her fight against cancer has been a way to show the grace of the Lord to unbelievers and Christians alike. The enemy tried to destroy her by giving her cancer, but she continued to serve and glorify the Lord. Then she went through several surgeries, but she continued to praise the Lord. She went through about six different cycles of chemotherapy throughout these years, and she showed testimony of her joy in the Lord, surprising both patients and doctors. Then she lost her smile due to a facial paralysis, but kept smiling both with her spirit and words. Then she was impeded from walking, but our Church rented a motorized wheelchair so she could go out to the street and share the love of the Lord. Then she was unable to sit straight but invited friends and neighbors to come in and hear the gospel from her in bed. And when she started losing her voice, encouraged the believers to strengthen their faith, give instructions for her funeral, said goodbye to the family, and asked the Lord to enter his presence. From our living room holding our hands and surrounded by the family, she departed to be with the Lord. The last thing Kathy did before going to heaven was to plan her own funeral. She knew that many people and friends would attend. The large auditorium where the funeral was held was packed out with people. Kathy has always carried a special spiritual burden for the salvation of many of her friends and neighbors, and she wanted them to hear the gospel one more time. She invited a personal family friend who was a pastor from the city to preach. He gave a message from the book of Philippians, "For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. So friends, let's remember the Kobo family and our prayers as they continue to, the rest of the family continues to serve and grieve the loss of this blessed woman in their life. But Kathy's life and ministry and even her death is such a model for us to live out the challenge of today of aligning our life around God's kingdom purposes. So I know today there's a lot in that message. Excellent job, Pastor Neely, thank you so much. Yeah, a lot of hot topics going on, thanks Neely. Um, I I know the spirit of God is stirring in people's hearts. I've had a few of those conversations already this morning. And so I wanna challenge you today, to take a spiritual step. Like, if the Spirit's revealing something, take a step of faith and pray with somebody. We have great people down here on the first floor that would love to pray with you. Look for the signs, and someone will greet you and pray with you. And in two weeks, friends, this auditorium is going to be full of foster and adoptive families from around the state and out of state. We're so excited to host the Refresh Conference. You guys can clap for that because that is a ministry of Overlake and it has tremendous ripple effect through the state and you guys are part of that. If you'd like to volunteer for it, there's a table you can stop at. But I wanted to let you know the Thursday before, we're doing a one-day parenting seminar that's not just about foster and adoption, it's for any parent. It's by Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, who is actually New York Times bestselling author. The Power of Showing Up. So we would encourage you to come. It's only $50. You get a book. It will be a powerful experience. If you know parents, you want to encourage them to check it out. and You can find out the information online. So why don't you all stand up and receive our blessing today. Over Lake, you are already pleasing to God. Do so even more. May we be his people, his family who orient our lives around love and generosity. May we be the family of God that is known for even more. Jesus, will you help us align our lives with your kingdom and the way we live? Empower us, strengthen us as we walk out these doors and live out our life this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you guys, we'll see you next week. you